Well, uh, during my preparation, I found an article with this title. Australia is building the biggest houses in the world. Uh, Here's how the article begins. Uh, We dream big in Australia. So it's little surprise that when the great Australian dream becomes a reality, it means bigger houses than anywhere else in the world. That's according to a new report commissioned by Comsec uh, through the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And the report shows our houses are now being built bigger than anywhere else in the world. In fact, apologies to... American brothers and sisters, we just reclaimed number one spot from the US. Just let that sink in for a sec. Australia is building the biggest houses in the world. I don't know if you've heard of the social commentator and researcher, highly regarded guy called Hugh Mackay. Hugh Mackay. He's written a book in the last few years called Australia Reimagined. Here's what he says. Australians, Australia's unprecedented run of economic growth has failed to deliver a more stable and harmonious society. We're more socially fragmented, more anxious, more depressed... More overweight, more overmedicated, deeper in debt and increasingly addicted, whether to our digital devices, drugs, pornography or just stuff. I don't know if you've heard of the psychologist of religion. He's a professor at New York University called Jonathan Haidt. Does that name mean anything to anyone? No, that's fine. I'm about to tell you. Jonathan Haidt, wonderful researcher, uh, psychology of religion. He's written a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. And in it, he discusses multiple studies that have been conducted that show a very weak correlation between wealth and contentment. And uh, these studies show that the more prosperous a society grows, the more common is depression. I was listening to an interview last year uh, with a um, missionary doctor, Australian missionary doctor. Uh, He's written a memoir called A Doctor in Africa. And during this interview, uh, it was with... um, the, um, the Honourable John Anderson, he, he says, this doctor, that my children grew up in Africa and my youngest just the other day said, when we lived in Africa, we didn't have running water, we didn't have electricity for days on end. Sometimes there was food we didn't have. The police would stop us on the side of the road and hassle us. But here in Australia, we always have water. We always have electricity. The police never stop us. We always have food. And I'm no longer grateful for anything. Friends, this morning we're looking at the problem of misplaced priorities. Could it be that our society and even in the church, we have a problem with misplaced priorities? Uh, Two times in the passage, and by the way, I hope you'll get it open in front of you. Haggai uh, 1, what page, Tanya? 768. If you, if you open that in front of you, uh, two times the prophet Haggai says to the people of God, consider how you have fared. Uh, two times he says it. In the NIV, the translation is, give careful thought to your ways. And that's what we're going to do this morning. 
As the prophet Haggai said to God's people, give careful thought to your ways. And then, and then here's their ways in verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And you that earn wages, earn wages to put them into a bag with holes. To sum it up in verse 9, God says, You have looked for much, and lo, it came to little. Couldn't that be a bit of a tagline for Western civilization or Australian society? You have looked for much, and lo, it came to little. This morning, as we come to hear the word of God through the prophet Haggai, I believe he wants to talk to us about two things. And the first is the problem of misplaced priorities, and the second is the healing of misplaced priorities. And so, Father, I pray uh, that by your Spirit you will fill us. Lord, thank you that today we are the temple of God, where your Spirit dwells, the saints, the people of God. And I pray, Lord, that just as you stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the the remnant of the people by your spirit, Jesus, you would come now and stir us up to be on about building God's house. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As you look at the passage, I wonder if you noticed that the word house comes up uh, seven or eight times in 15 verses. House, house, uh, the house of God. Uh, Clearly, it's the... A core theme of the message of Haggai. Uh, And what you need to know is that the house of God was the dwelling place of God. It it was the place where uh, the Lord God and his people could meet. And so I think of uh, the psalmist in Psalm 84 verse 10. Uh, He says, and many of you will know it well, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. The psalmist in Psalm 36 verses 7 to 9 says, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. Now, stay with me here, because in that phrase, he says, you give them drink from your river of delights. The Hebrew word for delights is Eden. You give them drink from the river of Eden, which, of course, brings us with this idea of the house of God, brings us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And I want you to stay with me here because we need to set up the story of Haggai and where we've been thus far. Because, of course, God put Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden that was like a house. And he put uh, Adam and Eve in there and he blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth because God wanted to build that garden to cover the whole earth. But, of course, in order for a garden to be fruitful and multiply, what does it need? It needs water. And so in Genesis 2, the writer spends four long verses, seemingly tedious, telling us about these rivers, these four rivers that flow out of the garden to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. West to irrigate the garden and to then grow the garden was Adam and Eve's mandate. It was their job, be fruitful and multiply. 
But instead of listening to God and obeying God and submitting to God, they listened to the snake. They disobeyed God. And so they were kicked out of the garden and they were cut off from the fountain of life. And so almost as a natural result of that, in Genesis 3, God said to them, Cursed is the ground because of you. Now you're going to get thorns and thistles instead of a beautiful garden. Why? Because they've been cut off from the fountain of life, the streams of living water that are in God. But God's purpose was always to build his house so that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. So the story doesn't end there. He, long story short, brings them into another garden called the promised land, which is described as a land flowing with milk and honey. And he commands them to build a house in this land where he can be with them and dwell with them. And he provides a sacrificial system so that their sins can be washed away, so that they can be brought into the presence of a holy and loving and righteous God. And he says to the people of God, just as he said to Adam and Eve, listen to my word, obey me, put me first. And you will live long in the land. And just like Adam and Eve, they listened to the snake and disobeyed God. And so just like Adam and Eve were brought out of this garden where the rivers of life were, so the Israelites were brought out of the promised land. And the way that this happened is that the Babylonian Empire came in the 6th century and they destroyed the house of God. They raised it to a pile of rubble and Jerusalem and Judea and they carried off the people of God into exile in Babylon across a great big desert. And then after 70 years of exile in Babylon, God made a decree. And that actually brings us to the very last chapter before we get to the story of Haggai. And and that is told in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. They've had spent 70 years in exile in Babylon. And Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, So again, some history. If you know the book of Daniel, you know that it was the Babylonians that took them into exile. But the Persians overthrew the Babylonians. And so the Babylonian Empire was gone. And now King Cyrus was the top dog. In first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus, who said, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judea. So, with the stroke of a pen in 538 BC, about 50,000 Jewish exiles went back home to build God's house in Jerusalem. And as soon as they arrive, they get to work. They do what God had said, build him a house in Judea. But as soon as they start to build the house, they experience opposition And as soon as they experience opposition, they find something easier to do. As if God's house is somehow supposed to be easy. As if building God's house isn't frontline spiritual warfare against an enemy who will not give up a single inch of his territory to the kingdom of God without a massive fight. They experience opposition And then they find something easier to do. And that was for about 15 years they found something easier to do. Until God raises up a prophet to remind them of why God sent them back to Judea and to Jerusalem. 
And you'll see what he said in verse 3. Have a look with me. The word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai saying, Is it a time for you to live in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? I mentioned Psalm 84 verse 10. The psalmist says, Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. But for 15 years, they've been saying, better is one day in my panelled house than the last 5,500 days in God's house. Away from God's presence. Away from God's forgiveness. Away from the fountain of life. Better is one day in my panelled house than 5,500 days away from the presence of God, the power of God, the forgiveness of God. That has been their story for the last 15 years. Remember Jesus in the New Testament quoting the prophet Isaiah. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, at the the commissioning of the temple, when it's finished, that the kind of consecration, the kind of launch He prays a big long prayer in 1 Kings 8. And it's all about prayer. All the situations that God's people will find themselves in. And and he's essentially praying, Lord, I pray that they would come here and pray to you. And he even talks about the situation that the people of God are finding themselves in Haggai. About when there's a drought. And he says, Lord, when there's a drought, I pray that people will turn to you, the fountain of life, So that the land can be restored. That's one of the things that King Solomon prays. So have a look at verse 9b in Haggai chapter 1. Jesus said, God says, Because my house lies in ruins, while all of you hurry off to your own houses, I've called for a drought on the land. In the same way that when Adam and Eve were cut off from the fountain of life, The ground was cursed and there was thorns and thistles, a drought in the land. And so now when God's house lies in ruins and they're cut off from the fountain of life, what happens? There's a drought in the land. The rivers of the living God have been dried up out of which the temple are supposed to flow. And so how do you stop the drought? Well, you need to find the rivers of living water. How do, you, how do the rivers of living water flow? You've got to rebuild God's house. And that's what God calls them to do. But for 15 years, they've been like, no, we're fine. We can do life without God. We can do life without God, in God being in God's presence and experiencing God's forgiveness. I came across a a quote a few days ago in a book called The Treasury of Prayer that I think captures a modern-day version of the problem. He writes that my creed leads me to believe that prayer is powerful and effective and surely a day's asking God to overrule all the events of the world is not lost. Still, there's a great feeling that when a man or woman is praying, he or she is doing nothing. And this feeling makes us give undue importance to work, even to the neglect of prayer. 
One of the contemporaries of Haggai, the prophet, was the the prophet Zechariah, to whom God says, not by strength, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Uh, the, The writer of this book continues, do we not rest too much on the arm of the flesh? Cannot the same wonders be done now as of old? Do not the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those who put their trust in him? Haggai is calling the people of God to come back to the house of God so that the streams of living water may flow. And the good news, the wonderful news of this story, this is a good news story, is that in verse 12, have a look, it says... They obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. How wonderful. How encouraging. And and as the story goes, we see that as soon as they got their priorities in the right order and in proper shape, as soon as they listened to the Lord, the river began to flow. Have a look at verse 14. Look at the phrase that's repeated. The Lord stirred up. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor. The spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of the people. See, the rivers began to flow as soon as they obeyed. The Lord, the spirit, stirred up their spirits. And what does it say? They came and worked on the house of the Lord. I just find that so encouraging. I think of the scripture that says, God says, before you call, I will answer. God is so eager to bless and to stir up those who will turn with him. The slightest inkling, the slightest turn. And he's eager to stir up the spirit and turn our hearts towards him to experience his life-giving fountain of life. That leads us then to the problem, sorry, the healing of misplaced priorities. They didn't keep their priorities in order. 500 years later, Jesus rocks up on the scene. Uh, Can you remember what happened when he came to the temple, the, the house of prayer? Instead of hearing the sound of the people praying, what did he hear? He sounded the clashing of coins, the bleeding of sheep, the shouting and the horse trading of marketing men. So what did he do? He made a whip and he drove them all out of the temple. It was a huge space. And he said to them, my house shall be a house of prayer. It is written that my house will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The only story that we have of the Lord Jesus as a boy. Do you know that story? Can you bring that story to mind? What what is that story? The parents lose him. They can't find him. For three days, he's lost. And eventually they find him where? In the house of the Lord. And what does he say to his parents? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. In the Gospel of Luke, there's only one reference to God's people praying. 
They're not living in the presence of God. They're, not, they're, they're doing life without him. There's only one reference in the Gospel of Luke to God's people praying, and yet there are ten references to the Lord Jesus praying. Do you know why that is? It's because Jesus is the praying temple. Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is the forgiveness of God. Jesus is the sacrifice of God. Jesus is the one from whom forgiveness flows and the one out of whom streams of living water flow. Just look at his life, friends, and how streams of living living water flowed out of him, healing the sick, miracles, deliverances, raising up the poor and the needy. Jesus was the praying temple who always kept God his Father as his number one priority, who never had misplaced priority, who had an unbroken connection with the Father and so out of him streams of living water flowed. Jesus is the praying temple. But he came to a people with misplaced priorities and they wanted none of it. They didn't want this temple. They didn't want the presence of God. They wanted to do life without him. And so they nailed him to a cross. And the very last prayer that he prayed was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer? Nothing. Darkness fell across the whole land. While he was on the cross, he said, I thirst. That wasn't just a physical thirst. I'll tell you what was happening. Is that the streams of living water that he had always known infinitely and eternally had been cut off. What was he doing? The New Testament talks about Jesus as the last Adam. You see, he was taking on the curse of the first Adam. The one who had misplaced priorities who sought his own kingdom and was cut off from the fountain of the living God. And rather than see his people bear the curse, Jesus came to took the curse upon himself. And then he rose again from the dead. And then 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, God burst the banks of the rivers of living water and they were poured out upon his church so that no one can stop them again. There's a difference in the new covenant that we live in to the old covenant that they were living under. We've already talked about how the dwelling place of God is no longer a building in a location, but is the saints, the people of God. But there's another difference too, because in Haggai, the blessing that they received was based on what they did. We we see that first they obeyed, And then they were blessed. But under the new covenant, the blessing is based on what Christ has done through his life, death and resurrection. Under the old covenant, the rivers were cut off whenever whenever they disobeyed because of their disobedience. But under the new covenant, the rivers keep on flowing and can never be stopped. But the question for us is, will we come and drink? Will we come to be in his house? And to be filled with his river of delights. 
In Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives instructions to the disciples about building God's house. He says that's your number one priority from now on. I love actually, by the way, at the end of Luke 24, uh, the very last verse of Luke, uh, it says they spent every day praising God and worshipping and praying in the house, in the temple, in the presence of of God. That's the very last verse of Luke 24. But then he, after washing away their sins and pouring out his spirit, he gives them instructions about how to go about the business of building God's house. He says, wait in Jerusalem for power, to be clothed with power from on high. In other words, pray for power. And then he says, witness, you'll be my witnesses to the life-giving streams that are in Jesus as you witness what's been opened up through his life, death and resurrection. And in other words, proclaim, pray for power and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. But that's why the apostles in Acts 6 says, we're not going to be distracted. There was a temptation in Acts chapter 6 to kind of wait on tables and do what was important work, but it wasn't their number one priority. And so they were rescued from having misplaced priorities. They said, we will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And that's how we build God's house, through prayer and through the ministry of the word. I I do love how practical this passage is. Have a look at verse 8 of Haggai chapter 1. God says, here's what you need to do. Go up to the hills and bring... So stop working on your panelled houses and living in your comfort and complacency. Get, get out of your comfort zone and just looking after yourself. That hasn't worked. You're dry. You're empty. You're unsatisfied. So go up to the hills, one. Bring wood, two. And build the house, three. It's so simple. And... And then verse 14, it says, they came and worked on the house of the Lord. It's so encouraging. And very practical. I I want to get very practical with you today. This year, I would love to raise up about a dozen people to be able to proclaim the word of Christ. I wrote about it actually in the musing, if you've been able to read the musing. I would love to be able to gather up people who are building God's house through sharing the message of Jesus. You can find out more about it in the musing, please read it. But I would love for us to be building God's house through proclaiming his word, raising up small group leaders with a tool of helping people see Jesus so we can gather people together and build God's house. Very practical. March the 2nd is when that kind of kicks off, Saturday morning, online, so that you can, unlike these guys, stay in the comfort of your home and living room, but come along and and join that process. Please pray that we might raise up people who can build God's house through the ministry of the word, witnessing to Jesus. And there's one other opportunity. And that is the relaunch of the monthly prayer meeting on Sunday nights that I just spoke about a few moments ago. A monthly prayer meeting where we can come and feast on the presence of God by his spirit in prayer. 
spiritual food, building one another up in Christ. Uh, You can pray alone. You can pray in your small group. Please do. You can pray in your marriage. I hope you do. You can pray with your friends. I, I hope you do. But I'm talking about something different. I'm talking about us gathering as a whole body as one on the fourth Sunday of every month as a united body to feast on his delights in the presence of God. That's what I'm asking you to do, just like they, they did. Look at verse 15. On the 24th day of the month. Don't come here on the 24th day of this month. Come here on the 25th day of this month at 7pm. Hear the mighty work of God in Rosalie and Lynn and let's pray for a great outpouring of the Spirit. Well, as we wrap up this morning, I think my favourite verse would have to be verse 14 where it says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of the people and they came and worked on the house of the Lord. Just like the Lord stirred up the spirit of the some people here in Cottesloe over 115 years ago, before any of this was built. And every week they prayed and they sought the Lord for the river of life, for streams of living water. And 115 years later, the river continues to flow. Let me pray. Lord, as the prophet Habakkuk prays, we have heard about your fame and we are filled with awe by your amazing deeds. But Lord, would you revive them in our day as you did in years gone by? By your spirit, would you stir up our hearts to build your house, to seek first the kingdom of God, that this would be a place where you delight to dwell more and more in our midst so that streams of living water would flow deeper and wider and longer until the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. Come, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.